Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to a very special edition of Drive Back the Night. This week, we're not going to uh, be examining an episode. We have a very special guest that we were very fortunate enough to interview a few weeks ago, Mr. Robert Hewitt Wolf. Ethan, why do I know that name? Uh, because every episode you have seen of Andromeda has had his name as the developer. Wow. Yeah. Wait a minute. We got to talk to him? We got to talk to him, yes. And it was uh, a quite an enjoyable conversation, in fact. You know what? I think I remember that. That was, that was actually a great time. And we're going to play that for you here after just a little bit. What we want to do right now is we'd like to uh, talk to you guys a little bit about really what this show is all about, what is driving us as far as uh, what our history is with Andromeda, with sci-fi. We are um, we're in Age of Geek Productions. And um, Age of Geek is headed by our very own Ethan Maestri. Ethan, you want to fill us in a little bit about Age of Geek for, for those who... Yeah, I, I hadn't uh, really talked about it on the podcast uh, for, for Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda series podcast. But yeah, Age of Geek is, you know, it's it's a bi-weekly, we do it twice a month. Uh, we try to, to stick to that kind of a schedule. And, and we just talk about geek things. And... You know, it's it's a different topic. We we may talk about Star Trek. We may talk about the latest movie we've seen. We may talk about something in science that's caught our caught our eye or attention. I try to go over a little bit of news and information. It it's part informative, part talk show. You know, just whatever uh, strikes our fancy for whoever's on the panel from yeah. uh, from week to week. Um, but yeah, we you know we have that going on over on uh, AgeofGeek.com, uh, hosted by Podbean. And uh, when Ryan got me watching Andromeda, I woke up one morning and it was just like, you know what? <laughs> I can't find a, a podcast that talks about Andromeda and I want there to be one. Well, shoot, I'm going to have to just <laughs> broach the subject. We're, we're going to have to step up to the plate on this. Yeah. And, you know, I uh, when when on, and when Andromeda first aired in syndication, um, I saw it in its first run. But I didn't really realize what it was that I was watching. I remembered that I liked it. I remembered I liked it a lot. And Ethan's, I'm sure, getting tired of hearing this story. But then I started watching Firefly. And it, like a lot of people, I watched Firefly well after it had already ended. After Serenity and everything. And I kept watching this Firefly thinking, man, this... It just all seems so familiar, like I've seen this before. And then it dawned on me, oh yeah, I have seen this when it was called Andromeda. And that's just kind of a little joke that, that I have with Ethan now. Cause, uh, well, well, now we have since shared it with Robert Hewitt Wolf as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and as you'll hear, he doesn't really want to have anything to do with that conversation. That's true. But... <laughs> But we forced it on him anyway. Um, no, but, uh, you know, I, I'm watching Firefly. I'm thinking, yeah, I really like this show. Where's the, what about, isn't there a girl with a tail or something? And and then finally it dawned on me, oh, yeah, that show was Andromeda. So I went back, I found the uh, the old Andromeda series, and I started watching it again, and I just fell in love with it all over again. And I started telling Ethan about it. And uh, had a real hard time getting him on board. It took him literally months. Just to get through 
uh, yeah. a handful of episodes. Oh yeah, yeah. But and, but I mean that's that it was it was a very slow burn to get started. But once I got about six or seven episodes in, it finally caught with me, and, and I devoted the time to actually go through the series, and it was well worth it. And, and, and you know I haven't I haven't watched the whole series. Um, I want to, but it, I kind of decided that since we were going to take this show on. Uh, I want my watching experience to kind of coincide with the podcast. And so that's kind of my angle. That's where I'm coming from. However, that's different from yours. Yeah, this is basically this is where we stand on this is that I have watched every episode of Andromeda and along read the coda. Um, I haven't read the books. I'm not sure if I'm going to, because if you listen to Age of Geek, then you would know that I don't read books. But Ethan is coming at this more fresh, more episode by episode. So we we have the two different perspectives going at the same time, uh, looking at this episode, trying not to spoil anything. And, and that helps me, that helps help keep me honest to not spoil things, because I know that Ethan, the, the co-host of the show, doesn't know what's coming next and i and i can see it in his face it's killing him every time we touch <laughs> on something that he wants to talk about that i haven't seen yet but like i said i watched the first uh, season and a half because that's it after that middle of the second season that's when robert hewitt wolf left and i i watched ahead so that i was familiar with what he had worked on up to the point where he had left the show and then stepped back from that so that we could do our show and I could come at it from a fresh perspective. So that's kind of a little background of, of where we're at in this series and where we're coming at you from. Yeah, I mean, that's why we're doing it. That's why we're here. And so now we're real excited to be able to bring to you our exclusive interview with Mr. Robert Hewitt Wolf. All right, so we're here with Robert Hewitt Wolf. Thanks for joining us today. No problem. Tell us about how you got into writing and, you know, then from that into television. I mean, I've always uh, wanted to write. I enjoyed writing. I think I tried to write my first novel when I was like 10. Um, I didn't finish it. Uh, I tried to write my second novel when I was like 15, didn't finish it. Third novel when I was in college, didn't finish it. I finally finished my first novel like two years ago. Um, uh, so I've always wanted to write. I didn't really understand that television was written because I grew up mostly in San Francisco, not in the, not, didn't know anyone in the industry or anything, but I came down to UCLA to, um, to be an electrical engineer. I went, to, uh, I was a, uh, E major for a year and I decided I didn't like doing math problems all day long. So I sort of wandered around campus and I, I ended up in the film department. I think I'd always had a secret agenda to do film, even with the electrical engineering degree back in the days when they actually built like, you know, remote controlled models to, and, and, uh, you know, camera rigs to shoot spaceships and such. Yeah, things, the, so. the stuff you don't see anymore. <laughs> no. Um, so, uh, good thing I decided not to do electrical engineering after yeah. all. Um, <laughs> and then I got into the film department and I made my first movie. Uh, this part thing called Part One, and it cost me 800 bucks, which I didn't have. <laughs> and then I wrote my first script and I won 2,500 bucks. And I was like, oh, in a contest. And I was like, oh, I guess uh, writing is the way to go. Yeah, and then uh, just kept at it. it took me um, five years after that to uh, get my first job, but that's about normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, well, all right. So the writing eventually uh, you caught on with that. What what got you though into the the television? Um, you know that 
the writing program at UCLA, and I got my, my bachelor's and my master's there both, is, is excellent, but it's mostly feared it's mostly geared towards feature writing, or it was when I went there. So I wrote a whole bunch of features, and I really thought about television. Okay. And I actually got an agent, and uh, I was going out with some scripts, and I hadn't sold any, but the ones that had gotten the closest to selling were a couple of science fiction scripts that I'd written. And one of the agents at the agency represented uh, one of the other writers on um, Star Trek The Next Generation. And so back then they had a fairly open-door policy for pitching, and she was able to get me a pitch meeting. And um, uh, so I, I honestly I hadn't watched a ton of the show. Um, if you re- remember, the first season was not great. No, uh, it had gotten a lot better by the time I came into pitch. It was like season four. Um, so I luckily it was in reruns on like uh, midnight on like KCOP, one of the local stations. So I watched um, I watched a ton of it as, in between the time I got the appointment, you know, and when I actually was able to go in and then. Pitched them a couple stories, didn't sell anything, <laughs> uh, but they liked me well enough that they invited me back for a second try, so I came back in, pitched a couple stories, didn't sell either one of those, um, and they invited me in for a third time, which I figured was probably my last shot, and uh, I had two stories, uh, one that was pretty well worked out, that I felt really good about, and one that was a little bit shoddier. And I uh, pitched out the first one, and they, they were like, we, we love it, it's really great, but we have something very much like it shooting on stage right now. So I literally banged my head on the arm of the couch. It was <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I got the other idea, Data, Holodeck, or blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, great, we love that. <laughs> wow. So they bought that, and that was, uh, that was Fistful of Data, so that was my first, um, first professional sale. Uh, and they let me write the script, um, which they liked uh, well enough to give me a freelance Deep Space Nine, and this was before it came on the air, so that they gave me the, the script job on Qus. I wrote that, and then um, uh, they liked my draft of that well enough to hire me on the staff on Deep Space Nine. Wow. Uh, again, this is all before the uh, the show was on the air. This is probably like, yeah. this is all sort of like that summer Leading up to that fall, when I, and I, I think I got on to uh, Deep Space Nine like in October, late October, and the show premiered in like January. So I was there, not from the very beginning, but but pretty close to it. So let's move on from from there. We're talking late nineties, and so uh, you're asked to develop uh, a story from notes from the late great Gene Roddenberry. Can you can you kind of give, give us an introduction into how you got involved in Andromeda? Um, yeah, well, I had uh, I had left uh, Deep Space Nine because I sold a pilot and a feature that I was putting up and trying to put together, um, and so I was focusing on those. Uh, neither one of them really particularly went. Uh, the pilot kind of turned into a, a bit, got a bit mangled and turned into a TV movie, and the uh, uh, the feature didn't get made. But um, in the meantime, uh, Tribune had gotten the rights to um, Roddenberry's sort of library of unpublished, unproduced things. And they had decided that, and they had also um, made a deal with Kevin Sorbo to be their next big syndication star. And they had wanted to combine those two things into something. Um, And they had decided to develop two, simultaneously two different projects that either one of, both of which would have had Sorbo as the lead and would have been based on Gene's stuff. One was supposed to be a planet-based show and the other a Starship-based show. And luckily for me, they had already given out the planet-based show because I thought the Starship show would be a lot more fun anyway. I wouldn't have really wanted to do the planet one. Which, so which they asked me... 
if I can mm-hmm. interrupt, that that seems a little odd. Because I mean, because you you were writing for D Space Nine, that was a very stationary object. A lot of people. That's why I wanted to do a non-stationary. I object see. Show. Okay, makes sense. I've already done a stationary object <laughs> show. Um, and also, plants are a lot tougher in, than the station. I mean, you, we had standing sets. If you're going to wander the Earth, wandering the Earth is expensive as a as a as a series premise. Mm-hmm. Um, wandering the face of an alien planet, even if it's the same alien planet all the time, is expensive. You're outside all the time. You're subject to weather. You've got to do visual effects to to fancy up the the look. You know, or everything is just going to look like the, the Vancouver watershed. Um, <laughs> So I was much more interested in doing a Starship show, and I had a vague idea, like I'd sort of as an intellectual exercise, come up with what I would have done if someone ever asked me to make a Starship Star Trek show. So I sort of um, read through Gene's stuff, took a few elements here and there, and then combined them with my already sort of pre-existing idea about what would I ever do if I were going to do Star Trek, and uh, the result was the Andromeda pitch. Um, so basically, the first step was they bought a Bible. So they bought, uh, you know, sort of a, a giant series proposal document from me and from the writers who did the other version. And uh, they liked mine enough that they produced like a sizzle reel. And they off just the sizzle reel, they sold it, forty-eight episodes worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was with Servo and my material and like all kinds of stuff from other movies cut into it. So we had a forty-eight, forty-eight, forty-four, forty-four episode, forty-four episode order walking in the door and then uh, we went off to Vancouver and we shot the show. It was a lot of fun. So when you got a hold of Roddenberry's notes, just exactly what was there and what did you have to fill in? I mean there was a lot of stuff, a lot of speeches, a lot of philosophical works. There were also um you know scripts for all the different versions of uh Mission Genesis um that whole he like three or four different versions, I think two of which got produced, of the idea of, like, the guy waking up in the post-apocalyptic Earth and wandering the face of the Earth trying to make things right. So, the, And that character's name was Dylan Hunt, so that existed. The bad guys were called the Tyrians, so the idea of sort of genetically engineered villains was in there. Um, and there was a character named Harbor. So I took, <laughs> I took that. And then... And there was another document called Starship, which was an idea for a actually an animated show about a crew of a starship traveling the galaxy doing good deeds. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing that was really interesting, I thought, in that was the idea that the starship was a character, mm-hmm. was a person. Um, so those were basically the things I took and put them all together with, like I said, the ideas I already had for, you know, the sort of, what would you do for a Star Trek show? Mm-hmm. And put them all in a mixed master, and uh, out came Andromeda. Yeah. It seems kind of strange that you could uh, get emotionally attached to a starship as a character, but that was good. That was really great. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, obviously AI was sort of in the, in the, 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 the cyberpunk was very much the, the sort of science fiction of the moment at the time, and AIs were a huge part of that. And just the idea of sort of combining AI with um, Starship stuff, like taking some of that cyberpunk aesthetic and trying to put it into a into a science fiction show, because I think that you know the the idea of what, like what a Starship show was had not changed all that much. Like the Star Trek shows had incorporated a lot of, like, all the faster-than-light travel, teleportation, all that stuff. But what they didn't incorporate very much was the the sort of idea of 
how computers would evolve over the years, which was something no one would have anticipated in 1960-whatever. But the idea of, like, virtual reality and cyberspace and AIs and, you know, avatars and all that kind of stuff, um, I just thought that that would be really interesting to to sort of bring as much of that as possible into a, into a you know, space opera setting. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the cultures, the culture novels do that too. And there's, there's, there's been more, much more of that, you know, sub sort of simultaneously and since, um, especially in novels. Um, but I was really interested in doing all that. So just how, uh, how involved or what was the involvement of, uh, Major Roddenberry, uh, Major Barry well, Roddenberry? Well, she was the right yeah. holder. Do so I- like in a lot of shows, um, she, especially initially, she needed to approve a lot of things, but once the show was up and running, she pretty much mm-hmm. trusted me to, to go and do what needed to be done and make, try to make a good show. And she knew that I, I, I cared about Jean's philosophy, you know, and respected it. And I think that that was always her main priority was that something with Jean's name on it was true to Jean's beliefs, um, even more than to anything you know, like creatively anything that he did, it was much more that she wanted things to be true to his philosophy. And since I had, you know, sort of grown up as a writer writing for a show that was an extension of what she did originally, I think she trusted me. So there was very little involvement mm-hmm. after the pilot. I wanted to ask a, a little bit about, uh, you were there for a season, a season and a half, right? Okay, um, I'm I'm gonna just clue you in a little bit. I've only seen a season and a half of Andromeda so far. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> because Ryan got me introduced Same to as me. No, oh, that, that's I wanted to ask you about that. So what? I mean, I got fired. Is that is that what you're trying to ask? I, yeah, that that is kind of because it's it's like you're there and then you're not. <laughs> and I yeah, didn't know that's what trans- being fired. Yeah, I didn't know how, how uh, if you wanted to talk about that a little bit. Oh, that's fine. Um, you know, it's been a long time. It's all good. That it paid me out anyway. Um, there was a couple things going on. One was that um, there were a lot of sort of people who, in some level or another, were sort of theoretically in charge on that show. But practically on television, if you have the creator of the show running the show, then that person is in charge. Yeah. And there were other people who did not, who would who wanted to be in charge. So that was part of it. Um, there was a slight difference in aesthetics, uh, although, you know, I sort of understood what the what the people, what they needed for international distribution, and I was moving the show more towards slightly more episodic stuff, which is what they really wanted. Um, but, and then there was, there was some contractual stuff, to be honest, where, if I had served out the entire first two years of the show, there was more money for me for every episode ever produced after that. Mm. And so they, there was a, a, a sort of a monetary incentive to, to, uh, you know, ask me and save, save them a bunch of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so there was just a lot of that. Uh, to be honest, um, Tribune fired all their show, all their show creators, usually after like about 10 episodes. Ah, and I knew hmm. that. I knew that walking in the door that that was sort of the, their pattern of business, um, and people had warned me about that. So you know, I lasted twenty episodes longer than everybody said I would yeah. when I walked when I got the job. So, I mean, it's all you know, whatever it sure is. Um, it's it's fucked and hurt, um, but uh, and I 
really haven't, I didn't watch anything after I left, uh, including, I left them a script. <laughs> so I think the last one that has my name on it was something I left behind that, that they, they rewrote subsequently, Dance of the Mayflies. Hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, it was a really fun run, and, and like I said, I got, I was there for about, I was probably there, I worked on at least, I worked on like 34 of the episodes, and I was fully there for, you know, 30, 32 of them. 32, probably about. And then, um, like I said, that's, that was way more than I was predicted to uh, to uh, to be able to run, to be able to do. <laughs> I think they fired the final conflict guys after like about six episodes. I'm not sure how long the next guys lasted. It was, you know, that was part of their pattern of doing business. Yeah. Well, now I'm not sure. I had some questions I wanted to ask you about uh, as far as how the series actually ended compared to uh, what you wanted to have happen and how you felt about that. But I guess maybe you probably don't know. Um, I vaguely, I think I read, you know, what had happened was I had sort of told some of the mythology to some of the writers who were there at the time. And like uh, they last, some of them stayed on for another season or two, so there was sort of a weird, distorted version of what I had originally uh-huh. planned. Right. Uh, I think, and I I read about it, and, and but really not much the desire to see it. And uh, they're online. I had promised the fans um, that I would eventually publish what my original plan was, and I sort of I did a little like one act play between Harper and uh, Trance that's online. Right. Or if you look for it, yeah, the code sort of lays out what I was vaguely planning. I mean, I, I'm not going to claim that I had a five year arc and written every episode before I started the show. I had a I had a goal in mind. I sort of knew where I was going. I didn't know fully how I was going to get there, but you know, that's television, right? You know, I, I think we got a couple of questions specifically about the Ouroboros. Yeah, sure. The 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 changeover uh, in trance from purple trance to gold trance was that something mm-hmm. that you had written in or was that a <laughs> no they did a they did a um they did some um very non-scientific audience research uh about the show on ways to improve the show and the audience that they had chosen and i was there for this and and it was not our target audience to be honest i was looking at these people beyond the glass and like going these guys are not who the show is for <laughs> but they did not like harper and they did not like trance and they said the best way to improve the show, these randomly selected people, was uh, to get rid of Trance. And so there was a um, a push to get rid of her, and uh, the compromise was to reinvent her. Because I thought, I mean, I thought that was, A, it was, she was a crucial character to the story I was telling, and mm-hmm. B, Laura was great, you know? Laura yeah. is yeah. the nicest, sweetest, and talented, and working hard, and putting on all that makeup, and... That was not, you know, there was no justice there. So yeah. it was a compromise. Um, and one I did, you know. Uh, uh, I'm sure they would have fired me, you know, two months earlier if I hadn't done that. They would have fired her too, probably. Hmm. Um, which would have been a gross injustice. So <laughs> so you say the audience, or this particular audience, didn't like Harper or Trance, and so you compromised with Trance. I don't recall any changes being made to Harper. No, Trance was really the, the biggest target. Um, Harper had supporters at the network, although some supporters, you know, it, it was a it was a very, very charged, very, very difficult, very political negotiation. Um, but, you know, I think that the compromise that was struck was probably the best one in the circumstances. Now, personally... Harper, yeah, we didn't do much with Harper. <laughs> we just kind of <laughs> let Harper be Harper. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I love all of the characters throughout the five seasons. Uh, Admittedly, I am the biggest Andromeda fan that I know. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. God bless you. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Do you have a favorite character? Oh, I I love all my children. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. That's that's diplomatic enough. I mean, to be honest, though, like, I really mean that when I talk about Andromeda. I mean, I love all those characters. I created all those characters. They were all my children. Yeah. And, you know, um, I put a tremendous amount of uh, of thought and care and love into developing each one and creating their, helping to create their voices, you know, creating what I thought their voices would be and then working with the actors to further refine that. And, uh, you know, those characters were all near and dear to me. So, um, and I think, you know, one of the strengths of the show was that there were seven and you know, even after after Rebbem, we had to lose Rebbem. There were six characters that I think people really identified with and were interested in, and that you know sort of sustained 110 episodes of television. So, yeah, if I did anything right, I think it was it was sort of that. Um, you know, and they just all they all had fun voices. They were all fun to write. They were all played by people who who would deliver the the scenes when you needed them to. Um, so. You know, even as much as much issues as I've sometimes, as I probably, you know, there are. Kevin, you know, obviously was not supportive when when I was fired, but you know, when Kevin was invested and working hard, he could he would he do a great job. You know, yeah. so um, yeah, those are all all like I said. I love all those characters. So you, but I did write a play about Harper and Trance, so you take from that what you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I did have uh, a couple of questions about the uh, the coda that you released um, online. Sure. Just as far as the timeline, was that coda, was that something that you had written right as you left the show and then just sat on it for the next uh, three, three and a half years? Or or was that uh, something that you, that you went ahead and wrote after the show was finally um, over? It, uh, all the ideas were stuff that I had developed and sat on for three years. But the actual prose I wrote um, after the show was off the air because I finally sat down to write the summation of what I was going to do. And I was like, oh, that's boring. So maybe there's a more fun way to do it. And then I decided to do what I did. Right. So that document was not written until the show was off the air. Okay. But everything in it was already in your head? Okay, because I was wondering, one of the questions that I had about that was if you had had to, and I know that you didn't go back and watch the episodes after you were gone, but did you have to do a little bit of retconning? Because there were some things that really lined up with the series rather well that um, I didn't know if that was still part of your vision or if you had to go back and just kind of try to make sense of what they had done or if you just completely disregarded what they did. I think if you read it closely, I didn't make sense of what they did. Okay. Right. <laughs> I just said that what they did was one possible version of the story. Um, but they had, they had, they knew enough about some of the, like I said, some of the mythology, the, the, the Lucifer stuff with, with trance. There were people who knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that the, that the abyss was sort of the anti trance mm-hmm. in some ways, they knew that. Um, so, I think that some version of that happened, um, but as far as like, 
I remember, I know, I heard that they they sort of sat on some sort of fantasy planner for like most of the fifth season because they couldn't afford to do anything else. They were out of money. Yeah, that show yeah. already had no money, so the fact that uh, the horror of the idea of making that show for less money than we made it for the first two years is like that's pretty appalling because there was no money. <laughs> there was <laughs> yeah. never any money, so yeah. I can't even imagine how to do that show for less. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I didn't do a whole lot of retconning. I just sort of said, there's lots of possible futures. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because one of the things that I was wanting to ask you about, too, was in your coda, um, well, you just mentioned about them being on this some um, fantasy planet for the whole fifth season. And yeah. in the coda, Harper specifically mentions um, Sifra. So, yeah. So was Sifra a part of your original vision? No. Okay. All right. <laughs> no. He, I think I believe the line is, yes, Sifra was pretty unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. I believe he says, yeah, that that was that didn't make a lot of sense, yeah. what happened there. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that probably wasn't part of your original plan, was it, <laughs> All right, all right. That makes sense then. And, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, during Ouroboros, is that happening at the same time as your coda as far as timeline? Um, yes. Okay, that's what I was picking up on because where Trance says you know she's in the present and at the moment she's trying to decide whether to save Harper or to to or to let him die or or to, or to save Hone or whatever. So right. Okay. So that is purple Trance at some point during during Ouroboros figuring out which future she's going to tack towards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And yeah. in that context, everything after that that was on screen could have maybe not happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. That's the expanded universe. Yeah. Exactly. There you go. There you go. <laughs> People that listen to our show know that we uh, are really big fans of Firefly, but when I first started watching Firefly, I remember... Um, calling Ethan or talking to him and saying, yeah, I really like that show, but I think I've seen it before. It was called Andromeda. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Obviously, they're very different shows, um, but there were just so many things that I thought, I kind of think they ripped off Andromeda on that part. Um, Just so many of the different characters and the way, um, what what their roles were in the crew, on the ship, and in the cast... Um, it just seemed like there were so many similarities. I mean, I didn't, I don't worry about that stuff too much. Um, I, because of all the other stuff I was doing, I didn't really even watch a lot of Firefly. Um, and I think that, you know, if you were trying to make a, if you're trying to make a Starship show, you know, there are, there are certain, there are certain things you need to have. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's certain dynamics you're going to have. You're going to have a cast of a certain size. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have certain archetypes. You, you know, you you have to have some version of the dude who or or dudette who fixes the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, the the fact that you might want that person to be the most entertaining, fast talking person on the on the crew <laughs> is not you know, it's not rocket science. That person is delivering a lot of exposition, and if they're not funny and interesting, that stuff is boring. Yeah, dead. Mm-hmm freaking boring so mm-hmm. the sort of the sort of uh darwinian you know approach to that is 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 not uh you know it's not surprising that two people would come up with the same solution i mean people have accused me of ripping off um what's we'll call it blake seven 
which I've never seen an episode of, <laughs> because I guess there was a dynamic between the captain and this sort of uh, warrior guy on that show that was not dissimilar to the, the dynamic between Dylan and Tyr, and probably not dissimilar to the dynamic between, um, what's, what's his face, Captain Browncoat, Malcolm, mm-hmm. Mal, yeah, and and uh, uh, right wing guy. <laughs> oh, Baldwin. Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. There was, I think that that dynamic was probably not dissimilar. If you're going to have a tough warrior dude, you want to make him or a deadly killer on your crew, you probably want that person to have a lot of conflict with your captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, look, Worf, as much as anyone had conflict with anyone on Next Generation, Worf had conflict with Picard yeah. and Riker mm-hmm. because he wanted to blow things up and mm-hmm. they didn't want him to. Um, so I think that there's certain dynamics that just sort of naturally occur when you when you create something like that. Right. Um, but, but there are plenty of different choices too. You know, I mean, they did not have a they did not have someone who who was a cannibal rapist on their crew. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 But they did a have the reavers. cannibal rapist. Yeah. Be that as it may, I'm already on record as saying that Joss Whedon ripped you off, so I'm just going to go ahead and stand by it. <laughs> well, I, uh, I do not necessarily endorse that. I don't have my license to practice law in the state of California, so... Uh, right. We understand. You're welcome to we're, say that, we're, but we're, I, I do not. We're in the Midwest, so we're, you know, we're a long way removed from that. So. I did want to ask you about uh, the, uh, the quotations at the beginning of each episode. Uh, what was the inspiration behind that, and and where did those come from generally? I mean, a lot. The idea was to try to create a greater universe outside of the universe of the show of the of that we could actually show on the on the on Andromeda. The idea being that there was this larger culture and this huge and interesting universe out there that the quotes were hope were supposed to sort of hint at and make people interested in. Mm-hmm. I, it's There's a lot of science fiction books that have that kind of stuff, that, uh, you know, at cha- as chapter headings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Dune, you know, there. I think there's a, there's some in Starship Troopers, you know, the the idea of trying to create a larger context for the universe by putting a little quote at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just reading a, a fantasy book that did that, uh, Way of Kings does oh. that. Um, uh, Sanderson? Uh, just some baseballing epic. Uh, but he, but to to create cultural context for the show, there's a for for his world, there's a little quote at the top of every chapter from someone talking about something interesting, and so I, I thought that that was a really fun way to to to, to open the show. Um, also, it was thirty seconds of screen time that we didn't have to pay for. There was nothing going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, so, I was gonna say for for the money that y'all had, it 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 worked, and that it, it made the show distinctive. It, yeah. Yeah, and then um, though, as far as how they were done, um, at least while I was there, you know, um, whoever wrote the episode would would pitch something, uh, and I would usually either either uh, polish it up or, or replace it mm-hmm. um, with something I wrote. So most of those were mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, just that was one of my sort of showrunnery things that I, I I really took possession of those quotes. <laughs> I was very very invested in those. Um, so, and a lot of the, you know, like the people who give the quotes are sort of in jokes. They're mm-hmm. my D&D characters' names or <laughs> my father-in-law or stuff like that. So Right. Interesting. Like yeah. Yeah. Very good. So, Ethan, 
do you do you have any more questions? Well, not specifically for Andromeda. I was just because I was going to say I've got a ton of questions. I could keep him on here for the next two or three hours, but I can't. <laughs> I, got I can't about 10 do more that. Minutes. Yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> Un- understood. Understood. Well, Robert, it, it, it's it's been fantastic being able to uh, have a chance to talk to you, particularly about the, the Andromeda series. But uh, indeed, all of your work is something that, for what we've seen, is fantastic. And uh, well, re- thanks. Really appreciate you taking the opportunity to uh, to come on the show. Uh, no problem. Glad to glad to do it. So that was Robert Hewitt Wolf. That was fun. That was fun, man. Ooh. That was awesome. It, it almost didn't happen, but the the fact that it did, and it was such a great conversation. It, it was, you know, it was fun. Oh man, I I was trying so hard to not act starstruck, but. I was trembling the whole interview. Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, for for guys in our position, I mean, we, we don't we don't make it to the comic cons because there's not one anywhere close to us. That's you know, that's a large event like a San Diego or New York or, or wherever. You know, so for us to be able to talk directly with the creator of a show that we appreciate and enjoy, I mean, come kudos to Robert Hewitt Wolf for taking the time mm-hmm. and, and talking with just a couple of guys, you know, in, in an isolated region of the country. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and, and to talk to us about a show that we love and, you know, a, a, uh, a craft that he does that, that obviously he loves as well. Yeah. I thought he was extremely generous with his time. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of the things that he was able to share with us. Um, so many things about the, uh, the the production of Andromeda and getting it started, and then being quite honest and candid with us, really, yeah. about a lot of the things that I was kind of hoping he would say, but was afraid that he wouldn't. Right. You right. know what I mean? Um, you know, just there, just all the the business aspects um, of this of this industry. Um, and he was very honest with us, and I appreciated that. Yeah, so I mean, that was a that was a great time, great experience, and and now you, the listener, now you have a little bit of that uh, that knowledge about the Andromeda show mm-hmm. imparted to you as well. Yeah, and you know, how about uh, all the stuff as far as after he left the show? So many of the things that that I like that he hates. <laughs> You know, I almost hate to say that because what if he hears this? I don't know if he's going to listen back to this or not, but, you know, uh, I know that there was a lot of things that happened in that show that that was not part of his vision for the show. Um, but I ended up liking. Would I have liked his show had he been able to stay? Probably. I don't know. I can't say for sure because I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have liked to have seen it. I think that's fair to say, but at the same time, I also like where the show ended up going. So I guess really we're we're winners all the way around. That's right. Yeah, that's a yeah that's a good way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think that uh, pretty much wraps it up for this show. Yep. So what we're going to do next week is go back to our regular episodic discussion of Andromeda, and we're going to kick it back off with Double Helix. Mm-hmm.